Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The title of our uh, study this morning is, uh, is right there on the screen. I'll just uh, get this going as well. And uh, what we're going to talk about today is Adam, Eve, and, and the Trinity. Well, that's a very interesting title, I guess. It's something to think about. Uh, what, what's the relationship between all those? So I might just mention a couple of quotes uh, about uh, how worship was conducted in the Garden of Eden. And uh, I want to explore that because one of the reasons today that a lot of people actually believe in the Trinity is because of uh, one particular verse that has to do with Adam and Eve, particularly them being one. Anyway, this will come in our study. It's not that... Uh, big of an issue as, as such. But in the story of Adam and Eve, it's actually a beautiful lesson that contains uh, many, many things that we can learn that we miss all too often. And that's the situation, that's the case many times with something that we're so familiar with that we actually uh, take it for general, that we know and understand everything about it. And we don't stop to check the details because it's something we're very familiar with. If I would say a oh, story of Adam and Eve, everyone say, oh yeah, we all know that story. Why don't we talk about something we don't know? But we want to explore and re-examine such a familiar story and see if we can learn something new. And then it's all the more, uh, you know, uh, beautiful and surprising when you learn something new in something that you thought you knew everything about. Isn't that right? So we want to look at uh, Adam and Eve. And we will find that uh, in the story of Adam and Eve, current issues today that cause uh, debate and difference can easily be resolved and and rightly understood, fantastic, thank you, and rightly understood when we look at uh, this particular story of Adam and Eve. One particular issue we will be touching on, among others, is a hot topic today in the church particularly, and that's the topic of women's ordination to the gospel ministry. You aware of that? This is a very big debate in the church today. It's uh, going to be spoken about in a, in a few months in general conference session. And uh, it's a really big issue. There's actually good potential that it might cause some serious splits in the church. So uh, we actually find an answer in the story of Adam and Eve as well. So we're going to touch on that just briefly a little bit. It's just some of the things we're going to be examining. But we find that the Bible is not the only source of divine revelation that we have been given. We refer to the Bible a lot. The Bible is... Uh, one source, it is the written Word of God, but there is another book, there is another source of divine revelation. This other book is not written down in words, this other book actually exists all around us. It's the lesson book of, of nature. And the scriptures actually tell that to us. Uh, when God, in creating everything, of course, in a perfect world, uh, He designed that the creation would testify to the Creator to say something and reveal something, or more than one thing, you know, to reveal things about God himself. And Psalm 19, we're told that. Uh, David here says, Psalm 19, verses 1 down to 3, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. And so nature... <laughs> gives a revelation, a declaration about God. And, and we have this, this double witness of the written word and the, 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 the uh, book of nature. They both combined reveal to us things about God. It's kind of like the, the workbook. You know, we, we read in the book of uh, Genesis about creation, and then we look around us and we see what that looks like. Sadly, of course, as a result of sin, the lesson book in nature has been marred and has been uh, distorted. But God's lessons are still there. And with the aid of the scriptures, we can actually understand the lessons that are contained in this book of nature. Uh, the New Testament tells us the same thing as well. But it gives us a little bit more detail. Romans 1 and verse 20 says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. It tells us that 
And in the context here, even the people who don't have the written word, who don't have the Bible, they have no excuse because God has revealed certain things about himself in creation, in the world, in the things that are made. And particularly what is revealed is what? His eternal power and Godhead. That's what it says here. And the word Godhead here, this is one of the words, you know, we might hear a lot this weekend. Uh, the word Godhead, if you look up the meaning of the word Godhead in the dictionary, it simply means divinity or divine nature. Godhead is not the name of a committee. Godhead does not carry any numerical hint or value whatsoever. It doesn't mean one or two or three or seven or 11. It has no numerical value. It simply means divinity or divine nature. The way we use the word today in most people's minds means something different to how it is used in the scriptures. And it creates a lot of unfortunate confusion. But if you look it up in the scriptures, this is for homework if you want. It's only mentioned three times in the New Testament. And you'll find that that's the meaning. That's the consistent meaning. And the possessor and the source of the Godhead or the divine nature and the divine character, of course, is God the Father. He is the Godhead, the only true God. And he has his only begotten son. And in the story of uh, creation, as, as we're seeing here, we want to look at the things that are made, particularly at the story of Adam and Eve. Because of all things that were created in the world, Adam and Eve were set to be created in the image and likeness of God. So if anything can reveal something about God's divine nature or God's divinity, who he is and what he is like, it is those things that were made in his image and in his likeness in particular. And so we want to look at that, like I said, and in the creation we find in 1 Timothy 2.13, we're given this uh, fact that we all know. Paul says, for Adam was first formed, and then Eve. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but you ever asked yourself the question, why was Adam first formed and then Eve? For example, if we were to ask it this way, was it possible for God to create Adam and Eve together at the same time? He didn't do that. He first created Adam, and then he created Eve. There has to be a reason, right? We want to examine what this reason is. God is trying to reveal a little something. And what does this reason have to do with us down here in 2015, all the way in the ends of the earth in New Zealand? What does that story of creation about 6,000 years ago have to do with us? Does the creation of Adam first and then Eve have any impact on us today? And the answer is yes once we understand what God was trying to portray or trying to reveal. So we go to 1 Corinthians, and Paul here, the same author, gives us another principle that sheds some light on this question. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, it says, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Paul here is uh, delineating or giving us some uh, hierarchical positions, or he's giving us some headship points. There's a certain relationship that exists between each pair that he mentions here. The head of every man is Christ. And then the head of the woman is the man. And then the head of Christ is God. So he's following a principle here that is very, very significant. And when, Ad, uh, when Adam and Eve were created and man was the head of the woman, that was to reflect a particular image. The image of the father and the son as the father being the head of the son. So if we were to just uh, outline that, just as Paul says, man is the head of the woman, in like manner it says, the head of, the, of Christ is God. So we want to compare these two heads, man, or the first man in particular, and the father. They are two heads. In other words, they hold a similar position in this particular relationship. And also we will look at the woman and the son. Because this is the question really of uh, today that's being agitated, this issue of woman's ordination. It has to do with headship, right? and leadership, and authority. So we'll see if we can uh, discover this particular uh, answer as we go along. But the question I also want to ask 
in uh, this light is why. Why was man created to be the head of the woman? Some women don't like that. Some men abuse that. But what is the reason that God has set it up this way? There is a reason. And the answer is actually in the same chapter in 1 Corinthians 11. It's a very interesting answer. Here's what it says. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 10. For this cause ought the woman to have power or authority on her head because of the angels. Well, there you go. That explains it all, doesn't it? That's the reason. And if you're wondering uh, what that means, you're not the only one, because when I first read this verse, I scratched my head and I thought, well, what? What? what does that mean? What does that have to do with anything? Paul is saying, listen, the reason why a woman has power or authority over her head, and who is that power or authority? It is the man. The reason for that, he says, is because of the angels. And then he doesn't explain anything, and then he keeps on going. And usually we read this verse, we, we think, I don't know what he means, and we keep on going as well. But I want to pause a little bit and think about this verse. What does that have to do with man being the head of woman? Which is a reflection of the relationship between God and Christ. You see, the angels in heaven had a problem. The problem began with one angel, Lucifer, who began to question certain things in heaven. He began to question why he was excluded from the councils of the Father and the Son. He began to question the position and the authority of the Son. He began to question and cast doubts in the minds of the angels as to the relationship, the unique relationship that Christ has with the Father that makes him access this divine counsel. Lucifer was actually uh, championing a cause that all the angels are equal sons of God, just like Christ. Why should Christ have a unique position other than all the other angels? This was really the, the bone of contention. We see that reflect, uh, come out again uh, in the wilderness of temptation on earth when Christ and Satan met again face to face. But of course, this all started in heaven. And as a result of his questioning, as a result of his, uh, you know, uh, all these ideas that he was promoting, he managed to convince one third of the angels, of course, who eventually joined him and they were cast out of heaven. The foundation for Lucifer being cast out of heaven was a questioning of the structure of government in heaven. It was casting doubt on the unique relationship between the father and the son, particularly the son's position. And even though he was cast out of heaven, even though he uh, desired to be equal to the son and to receive worship like God himself, even though him and his angels were removed out of heaven, but there was still the two-thirds of the angels in heaven. And those two-thirds of the angels in heaven were left with questions in their minds, questions that Lucifer had raised, questions that now demanded an answer, demanded some resolution, some explanation, Something to clarify and explain what that was. You see, the casting out of Lucifer out of heaven did not answer these questions. And God being the wise, loving God that he is, he wanted to remove every cause for doubt or for questioning or for wonder. And to resolve these questions. You see, the, the things that Lucifer had raised, you see, a lot of the angels, the good and faithful angels who would have remained loyal to God and his son would have thought, you know, I never thought of that before. What did Lucifer really mean? You know, I never really questioned the, the position of the son. What, what does that really mean? All these questions were in their minds, you see. And so things that they had never wondered about, things that they'd never questioned before. And so God had the task of clarifying that. God didn't just say, look, this is how it is. Just deal with it. No, God had to explained that. And uh, he explained that in the very next creation project that was scheduled to take place. It happened to be the creation of 
a very unique order of beings. That's us, human beings, you and me. And in the creation of man, because this is the background of, what, of what had just happened in heaven before the creation of man. In the creation of man, we have to keep in mind this background of what just occurred because it actually helps us understand why God did things the way he did in the creation of Adam and Eve. And the reason why he set up and created Adam and Eve to reflect in a particular way his relationship with his son. The reason why that is so, as Paul says, is because of... The angels, we just read that in 1 Corinthians. And so the creation of men, planet Earth, of course, and the human race who were to populate it. And uh, this new creation was to be in God's own image and likeness. We read it in Genesis 1.26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Who was speaking to who here? It was the father addressing the son. So the father tells the son, he says, son, this is what we're going to do. You and me, let us create man in our image, in your image and my image, in our likeness. So not only would man look like God, but the relationship between the immediate creation of God, the relationship between Adam and Eve, because that's who God created. The relationship between Adam and Eve would actually reflect the relationship that exists between the father and the son. So it was a physical likeness. It was also a spiritual likeness and also a relational likeness between Adam and Eve. And the reason again is why? Because of? The angel. I want you to keep that in mind. Because everything that God was doing in Eden, who was watching very closely? Angels. None of us were there, right? We read about it and we know this is what we're told. But there were actual beings witnessing what was taking place then and there. We learned lessons as well, but they, of course, were there a long time before us. And so the Father and the Son were to create Adam and Eve, man and woman, to reflect them. And this is why we see Paul draws the analogy and says, just as the Father is the head of Christ, Man is the head of woman. And so that's the reason why Adam was first made and then, and then Eve. And so God said it here, Genesis 1.27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. So it is both male and female that reflect the image and likeness of God. Adam alone was insufficient to reflect the image and likeness of God. All the ladies are happy when they hear that part. <laughs> Isn't that right? It says, male and female created he, them. And that was the creation, of course, of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve together would reflect the Father and the Son in more ways than we think, as we shall see. And uh, we'll see how that has to do with, of course, what God wanted to reveal about himself and about his Son. And of course, the angels are there watching. And so Christ comes down and, and gets his hands dirty, so to speak. He actually forms man of the dust of the ground. Genesis 2.7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Man was made of two components, right? The dust of the ground, what's that? That is a physical component. Something you can see, something you can touch. And then it says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. What component is that? That's a spiritual component. And the breath of life here is the spirit of God, which is life. And so man was to reflect the being that created him in the physical level, on the physical plane, and also on the spiritual plane. Man was to be a physical being filled with the Spirit of God, this breath of life. And the union of the two makes this living soul. And of course, uh, the Bible tells us that uh, man was called Adam. And the name Adam, I think I mentioned it last night, but I mentioned it again. The, main, the name Adam is the name of the whole human race. And it's also the proper name of the first human because he is representative of the whole race. So usually when we say Adam, we refer to the first representative of humans. But that wasn't just 
his name. And that also has uh, you know, a lesson for us as well. I want to read this, uh, these couple of statements because this is important to keep in mind this particular aspect. In the book of education, it says, when Adam came from the Creator's hand, he bore in his physical, mental, and spiritual nature a likeness to his maker. Not only in the spiritual and mental, but in the physical. Man was made physically to look like God. So if the angels were to look at Adam, they say, wow, he looks like God. He thinks like God. He acts like God. And so for this we know God you know, has two arms. He has two eyes, two ears. It doesn't look like something totally different. God exists on a physical, visible level. God is a tangible being in heaven. Not just spirit, as we found out yesterday. And man was made in that image. In the beginning, man was created in the likeness of God. Not only in character, but in form and feature. In the same form and feature. Very, very interesting. And so, man was given this blessing. And you know, we're not told about any other creature that was made in the image and likeness of God in this way. And remember, Adam was reflecting whose position? The father, right? Man was first formed. And man was to, particularly Adam, he was to reflect the position of God the father. And so, as a result, we see in uh, Genesis 2.19, this interesting account. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. We all know that. It was Adam who named the animals. But it was important. There was a reason why Adam named the animals. What is the reason, they think? Felt a connection with them? Remember, his to represent whose position? God the Father. And who's watching as God brings one animal after the other and says, Adam, what's this? What shall we call this? And Adam says, that's a cow. Okay, well done, Adam. That's what I think exactly. Adam, what shall we call this? Oh, that's a giraffe. Who's watching? The angels. In what God was doing, in Adam exercising this authority, God was illustrating something. Let's look at uh, Ephesians 3, verse 14 and 15. Paul here says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. The whole family in heaven and earth is named by who? By the Father. Paul says here, the Father of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And so God gave Adam the position of naming the whole family on earth as a reflection of his position as the father and the God of the universe. He started with the animals, and later on, of course, he named his wife Eve. It was Adam who did that. He was reflecting the position of the father. Not only that, but Adam was also given something else. Psalm 8, 6. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Adam was made to be king of the earth. Why is that? Because he's reflecting the position of the father. He's the king. He's to exercise authority. The earth was his dominion. And he told Adam and Eve, I've given you dominion over everything. This kingly blessing that was bestowed on Adam is a result of him being made in the image and likeness of God. And so as the, as the angels would look at Adam, they would see in him a miniature model of what things were like in heaven. Now remember, in this, God was actually answering and dispelling the doubts that Lucifer had raised about his relationship with his son in heaven. And so that's why Adam, of course, was created first, and he was the head of the race. And that's why when Adam fell, uh, humanity was lost when Adam fell, not when Eve fell. So... It was, it was Adam's fault. Okay, ladies? We take responsibility for that. When Eve ate, the human race did not fall. It was when the head of humanity ate. Because the Bible tells us Eve was deceived, but Adam was not deceived. And this is a reflection again of the same setup that God had put there all the way 
from Eden. And then, of course, we know the account. It goes on to say, Genesis 2, verse 21, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. This, of course, is the creation of Eve. And here we find a few firsts. This is the first surgery ever recorded in human history. The first doctor was who? Was God, Dr. Jesus. Okay? It was the very first surgery, very first anesthetist as well. Right? He put Adam to sleep and he performed the surgery and he made, he made Eve. And uh, the interesting thing is the word there that's used for making Eve, if you look it up in the Hebrew, you will find that it's a different word that is used to everything else that was created. It says it, she was made, or some Bible margins says Eve was builded or built. You see, Eve was not created out of nothing, was she? This was a very unique way to make Eve. And there is a reason why God chose to build Eve out of existing material that came from her husband. He didn't go in the dust and make Eve and breathe into her nostrils. But he didn't do that. He chose to do this unique, almost strange thing of taking a rib out of Adam and then building Eve out of that. And there is a reason why, because who is watching, remember? The angels are watching. And who is Eve going to represent? Whose position is she going to represent? The son's position. And the relationship she will have to Adam will represent the relationship between the father and the son. As a matter of fact, how she actually came into being was to be a reflection of the son of God and how he had come into being. On a small scale level, keep that in mind, okay? This is, it's, it's a model, it's not, the, it's not identical, but it's a picture. God is giving a lesson, and that's why God actually created Adam f uh, first, and then Eve. Genesis 2.23, notice what it says here. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So Adam names Eve, and then Adam says she is equal to me in nature, right? She is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, even though she came after him, right? Interesting. So even though she came after him and out of him, she still has the same nature, the same makeup, bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. That reflects the position of the son. Now keep that in mind, there are very insightful uh, points here that the scripture brings out. Angels were learning about the divine relationship between the father and the son. Notice how the son is described. We read this yesterday. I'll just briefly go over it. Proverbs 8, 24 and 25. Jesus here speaking under the title of wisdom. He says, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, was I brought forth. Christ was brought forth from the father. Eve was taken from Adam or brought forth from Adam. Interesting. Because there is a reason why God created Eve the way he did. You see, uh, if you don't recognize or understand that Christ is the begotten son, you are left in total mystery as to why God created Eve the way he did. It, there really isn't an explanation for it. But if you understand what was happening in heaven, if you understand the position that the son has and why he has it, it's all of a sudden, you know, it's like a light bulb comes up on in our head. All of a sudden it starts to make sense. And Christ, because he was brought forth, Hebrews 1, 3 tells us, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. In essence, Christ was bone of God's bone and flesh of his flesh. Not that God is born in flesh, but you know what I mean? He had the same nature as his father because he was begotten. He was born of him. Just like Eve had the same nature as Adam. Even though Eve came after Adam. And even though the son of God came out from the father after the father. You see, 
Coming after does not mean a lower position or a lower rank when it comes to nature. This is a, this is a, a problem that a lot of people have today think, no, in order for the son to be equal with the father, he has to be exactly the same age and he has to also have no beginning. But that's not the lesson that God was teaching in the creation of Adam and Eve, was he? He was showing us that one being can come out of another after the other and still be exactly the same nature. And as evidence of that, of course, God married them together. Genesis 2.24, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. God married them to demonstrate their equality, their position, possessing the same nature. But they were still to reflect the principle of headship. Man was still to be the head in the home, and the wife is to be the loving, submissive wife. That's the principle that God had set up. And they were united here in nature. Just like the father and the son are united in spirit. Let's have a look at it. John 17, 21. That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they may be one, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So the Father and the Son are united, and the union of the Father and the Son is also to be reflected in the union between Christ and His people. That's what Christ is saying here. The union that I have with my followers is to be a reflection of the union between me and my Father. What is the union that we are to have with Christ? 1 Corinthians six seventeen tells us, But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. You ever thought about this verse? This is one of those verses that, again, they don't get talked about much. It's like we, we're picking all the verses nobody likes to use, right? <laughs> but it's in the same Bible we all have, right? He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. Brothers and sisters, when we believe, when we accept Christ as Lord and Savior, the Bible says we become one spirit with Him. We are joined together on the spiritual level. We become one. And Jesus says, this union that I have with you as my followers is a reflection of the union that I have with my Father. In other words, the Father and the Son are one Spirit. That's what it says. That's how we are in Christ. Christ joins our life with His life. His life becomes our life because that's what Spirit means. See, the problem exists when we misunderstand what Spirit means. All of a sudden, most of the time we think, oh, Spirit is, is someone. And, and so verses like this don't make any sense to us. And so we ignore them, we leave them, we don't talk about them because it doesn't make any sense. How can we be one spirit with the Lord if the spirit is someone else? But if you understand what the Bible teaches, that spirit is really life. It is the mind and personal presence of Christ. When we believe he joins that with us, we share, we have his very own life or his very own spirit. And in the creation of Adam and Eve, God made Adam and Eve to be one flesh, to reflect how he and his son are joined together. In uh, Genesis 3.20, it then goes on to tell us, we're just briefly picking some highlights from this story. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. What does that signify? Eve was the mother of all living. Eve was reflecting whose position? The son, right? Every other living human being would come through Eve. Adam and Eve would have a very special meeting together. As a result of this meeting, and through the direct agency of Eve, a new life would be born. That reflects something, right? Just like everything was made through who? Through the Son. The Father and the Son meet together, and through the direct agency of the Son, Life is created. Now, of course, I want to clarify something here, because sometimes people can, can misunderstand and say, but, you know, Adam and Eve, that's a man and a woman, but the father and the son, they're, they're both male, male figures. God did not create the likeness on a gender level. We're not talking about gender here and, and how man and woman meet together. It's, it's very different. So I don't want anyone to misunderstand me and go to strange places in your heads. It happens sometimes you're more misunderstood than understood, unfortunately. So I want to clarify that it's not a gender likeness. There are common features between man and woman that are refle a reflection of what God is like. But there are unique features that distinguish gender. 
You know, the angels were told do not have gender, and, and when we go to heaven, we'll be like the angels. So we have to keep that in mind as well. It's, it's a small-scale model, more to reflect the character and personality and relationship. It's the relationship between the man and the woman that reflects the relationship between the father and the son, not the, not the gender as such, but we'll come to that a little bit later. Because the gender, of course, has a place. Even the, the you know, I don't want women to feel left out and say, you know, it's all, uh, it's all males here and, and women are, are kind of a unique gender. The, the characteristics of the female are an aspect of God's character. You know, the, uh, a mother who loves and cares for her children, Christ likens himself to that as well. So that's, it's not, you know, off the charts, okay? But the, the both of them make one complete, the men and the women make one complete image or one complete uh, picture. So Eve is the agent of procreation. And in Colossians 1, 15 and 16, we have the same of Christ. It says, with the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. Christ is the direct agent of creation. He's the medium of creation. And that's why Eve was formed the way that she was. And that's why every other human being comes into this world or came into this world through Eve. That's uh, all of us here, of course, if we go a long, long, long way back. Ephesians chapter 5 also gives us another parallel relationship as well that was to be a reflection as well. Wives, it says, verse 22, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And so God designed the home, the family today, the husband and wife relationship, to still continue, despite the fall, to still continue to be a reflection of the father and the son. Because God wants that for each and every family. And as believers, brothers and sisters, the family is one of the strongest witnesses that we have to actually preach the truth. You realize that? It's not when we get up the front and preach. Anyone can do that. It's how we are in the home. Does our home, does our relationship, you know, husbands and wives, do our relationships reflect the father and the son. The husband is to reflect the position of the father. The wife is to reflect the position of the son. And that's why it says, wives, submit yourselves unto the husbands as unto the Lord. And then it says, the other parallel is Christ and the church. So there are a number of, of authority and headship uh, uh, relationships that are brought out to us in the scriptures. But before we go into that, I just want to highlight a few points. You know, the... the the son says, when Christ was on earth, it says uh, the father loves the son because the son always does the things that please him. You know, that's a good, uh, that's a good principle for, for the wives, right? Isn't that right? Amen. <laughs> All the men said amen, of course. And... Uh, you know, and he honors the father. He, his, his mission is to actually further the reputation of his father. That, that relationship, brothers and sisters, God designed it for the home. And that's why he created Adam and Eve the way he did. Now, uh, like I said before, uh, many times there is a problem today in the world because a lot of women really resent that. And to a large degree, the reason why they resent that is because the men have abused their position and totally totally, uh, you know, destroyed any semblance of that, that reflection of what heaven is, is trying to, to say. So, so the men have, a, the, the women have a turn to say amen loudly in a minute. So get ready, huh? <laughs> but that's what God designed for Adam and Eve. See, the problem of sin, brothers and sisters, this is what caused all these issues among us. That's why Paul says, you know, if you marry, you're going to have trouble in the flesh. You know, sin has caused a, a, a problem and a strain on this beautiful relationship that God had designed. And this is why we have all kinds of issues and problems that exist. But God still wants us to reflect that. And he has promised to enable us in our homes with power to do so. If we understand the purpose of why he set things up the way he did. He didn't just arbitrarily say, well, I want men to be the boss. 
Now, a lot of, a lot of men quote this verse to their, to their wives in, in, in totally out of context ways that God never intended. And sadly, this, uh, this is a, a problem, like I said today. And uh, here, here's uh, the position of the father, which is the, the husband is to reflect. The Bible says the father loves the son and gives what? Everything to him. He says, the Bible says, the father loved the son and has given all things into his hands. Husbands, how do you do with your wives? Have you given all things into her hands? Or does the poor wife have to resort to that terrible nagging to get things from the husband? Many times it's the husband that, uh, that trains the wife to do that, right? No, 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 we can't, do, I can't give you this, can't do that, can't do the other thing. And the poor wife, you know, she's out of options and she has to, you know, really say, I really need that, I want that, whatever it is. So men, do you reflect the position of the father to be the provider? for your household, for your family, where the wife feels secure and safe and wants nothing. That's why the wife will happily do everything that pleases you. It's a relationship, it's a working relationship. And all the ladies said, amen, okay. And so the, the wife's submission, loving submission to her husband is what establishes his authority as she recognizes the role that God wants her to play to reflect the position of the son. Because brothers and sisters, who is still watching in our homes, invisible to our eyes? It is still the angels. We are still a lesson book. We haven't ceased to be a lesson book just because sin happened and because Adam and Eve fell. What lessons do the angels learn in your home about the father and the son? That's a challenging question. What do they learn in my home? You see, when we understand God's wisdom, why he set it up this way, all of a sudden it takes on a whole different meaning, right? At least this is, uh, this is the hope. And so the wife holds a very, very important key in the home, just like the son holds a very important key in the universe. And so biblical headship and the principle of biblical headship is based on the original divine relationship between the father and the son and that's why man was created in the image and likeness of God the husband man Adam was first formed and then Eve and man was made to be head and so Christ also in his relationship with this with his church reflects that position and Christ is the head of the church and the church is to submit to Christ in everything as we just uh, read uh, he is the true head of the church which by the way gives us an insight as to who guides and directs the church today. Christ has not given that job to anyone else. He is still the head of the church on earth today. He hasn't, he hasn't given it to another being. He's still the head. He does it by his spirit, and that's him. And so today we have in the church a reflection of that model where the head of the home is selected to be the head of the church, the representative of Christ, not as a pope, but as a shepherd or as a leader or what we refer today commonly as a pastor. And generally, pastors have always been men, correct? Today, some people have a problem with that. Say, you know what? This is inequality. Pastors should also be women because, you know, God created us all equal and, and so on and so forth. But brothers and sisters, we need to look at that in light of the principle of headship that exists in all these different relationships. This is really the key. They all have to match. They all have to reflect accurately among each other. One of the descriptions for the pastor or the elder is mentioned in 1 Timothy 3 verses 2 to 4. The qualifications here. It says, a bishop then must be blameless. The husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy, or filthy looker, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his house, having his children in subjection, sorry, with all gravity. And so it says here, for a, for a person to be a pastor, or an elder, or a bishop, one of the qualifications is he has, he has to have only one wife. If you have any more than one wife, you don't qualify. And also he has to be ruling his house well. So if he were to rule his house well, biblically, what does that mean? He would be the head of his home, correct? Now, unfortunately today, 
there are some homes where the wife is the head of the home, not the husband. Don't put your hand up if this is your situation. <laughs> but it, you know what I'm talking about? And, and there are all kinds of issues and, and, and situations that result. And sometimes it is because the man is not man enough to take responsibility and charge of his home. And sometimes because the woman wants to prove a point or whatever is the reason, it's because of sin really at the end of the day. There is this contention and this uh, wanting someone else's role. Uh, but here it tells us that a, a bishop or a pastor needs to be one that rules his house well, as evidenced by the fact that his children will be in subjection. The fact that his children will be in subjection, where do they learn subjection to their father from? It's from the wife. Who demonstrates subjection to the authority of the father as the head in the home? To the children. It is the wife. And so if the wife are rebellious and disrespectful of their father and they don't respect his authority, perhaps we need to look at how the wife demonstrates that between her and her husband to the children. You with me? And so the, the wife has this key role of holding the family together. She is the key that connects the children with the father. And Paul here is saying, listen, for a pastor of the church, he needs to be one that in his home, he reflects this relationship because he's going to be the head of the church to reflect the position of Christ to the church. And so one of these qualifications is he has to be one that rules his house well. And so in the women's ordination situation that uh, is going to be discussed what, next two months away or something? In the joint conference session. This is the issue that's being discussed. The desire is to put as pastors, ladies in the church, to be the head of the church. But in order to be consistent, in order to bestow this office or this headship role on the woman, we have to be consistent because all of a sudden it's out of sync with all the other relationships of headship that we have in the scriptures. Now, the reason why, and I, I think you figured out by now, I don't believe women's ordination is biblical in any way, shape, or form. I'll show you why in a minute. This is not to put women down or to say that they're unable. It's just not the role that God has called them for. Just like God has not given to men to bear the children. It would be ludicrous for men to say, we want equal rights. I want to be able to bear children just like the wife. We think that's silly, but this is not how God set it up. And there is a reason for that. In departing from God's principle, we actually begin to distort the image that God is trying to have us reflect. And so if we're to be consistent, if the, if the woman is to become the head in the church, then we also have to reverse the situation at home. We would have to assume that this woman is the head of her husband. On the left side is the head side. I'm just going to adjust it according to the woman's ordination. That's why we're having it this way. Because one of the qualifications for the elder is to rule well his house. So if, the, if we have a lady pastor, we have to assume that she's the one ruling her house. But this is not biblical because the Bible says the wife is to submit to the husband. So if this is reversed, then of course, in like manner, we also have to reverse this relationship. And then for everything to be consistent, we ultimately have to reverse this relationship between the father and the son. Now that looks really wrong, doesn't it? <coughs> Because this is the inverse of what God has set up. You see, a lot of people today say, look, you know, man and woman, it doesn't really matter. They're interchangeable. If she is fit, she can be a pastor as good as a man. Now, uh, there are a lot of women who have very wonderful, beautiful abilities of speaking or preaching or whatever it is, uh, better than a lot of men. So this is not the question. The question is, has God called them to fill this position of headship in the church or not? And we see from the pattern here that it's, uh, it's quite different. Now, being out of sync, this, as I said, all this looks wrong all of a sudden. The reason why this is so in many minds is it actually comes down to the view that we have of God. The relationship that we have of God. The most common idea about God that exists today, particularly in the church, is that God is a trinity. These three co-equal beings that actually in a lot of people's minds are interchangeable. They're co-equal. The father could be the son. They're only titles because he's not the real father. The son was not truly begotten of him. And then there is the spirit. They're only titles that they wear to fill certain functions. So if one were to do the function of the other, they would be interchangeable. And that's acceptable to a lot of people. And so in like manner, then it makes sense for you to see that in the church, the man or the woman can be interchangeable 
for them to be a pastor. You with me? But if you believe that the father is a real father and that the son is a real son, there's no interchange here. And God has created man and woman to reflect that relationship in the home and in the church, then you are actually safe. And this issue is, becomes all of, us, all of a sudden a non-issue. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about because this is, like I said, what lies at the heart of it. This is from the Review and Herald. Uh, I'll just read some sample statements. Review and Herald in 71. This is uh, Brother Spangler here. He says, The Gospel Commission commands surrendered souls to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The Apostolic Benediction in 2 Corinthians 13, 14 lists the three and names Christ first. Paul usually places God the Father first, but here it is reversed. To me, this signifies the interchangeableness of the members of the Godhead <laughs> since they are one in action and purpose. So according to this brother, according in this publication, he says, you know, listing the father and the son first or second really doesn't make any difference because they are interchangeable. Let me read you another example. This is from the Sabbath School lesson in 2008. And uh, you might remember this, maybe not, but here's what it says. Imagine a situation in which the being we have come to know as God the Father came to die for us. And the one we have come to know as Jesus stayed back in heaven. We are speaking in human terms to make a point. Nothing would have changed except that we would have been calling each by the name we now use for the other. That is what equality in the deity means. Now, if you think that's, that's really strange, you're not the only one. But these are people, brothers and sisters, who influenced the thinking of a whole heap of people in the church. Equality to this brother means that the father and son are interchangeable. Therefore, it is logical and it makes sense for you to be consistent and also find it makes good reason to interchange the man and the woman in the position of pastor. This is really the root of the problem because it, it's actually consistent. For, for belief in the Trinity, it is consistent to actually have female pastors, if you believe in the Trinity. Because as they say here, we believe this equality means they are interchangeable. And this is really the fundamental belief of the church. The Trinity, it says there is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a unity of three co-eternal persons. And they believe that any one of them could have come and died for us. Only the Son, brothers and sisters, could have come and died. We're going to see why in a few other uh, presentations as, as we go along. And uh, so it's important to keep in mind why some of these things come about. The story of Adam and Eve is a very, very good uh, resolution to the problem. In 1 Corinthians 15, it tells us that Christ has this position. 1 Corinthians 15, 28. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. This is talking about the Father here. It says the Son will be subject to the Father. For how long? Forever. And that tells us also that that's how it always was before that. Not only will it be that way in the future, but actually the Son was always subject to the Father. We need to understand the reason. See, a lot of people today believe, yes, well, the Son is subject to the Father because, you know, He came as a man and so on. What is the reason that the Son is subject to the Father? It is because the Son was begotten of the Father. The source of the Son is God the Father. The Son knows that better than you and I. He is well aware of that, and so He honors His Father and is subject to his father, not as an inferior, but because his father is the only true God, the great source of all. Amen. And in that relationship, the son actually is the teacher and the guide for all the universe, all the beings in the universe, to learn how to relate to God the Father. They learn that by watching the son. They learn to submit to God the Father by looking at the submission of his son to him. 
The one who actually took his eyes off the sun was Lucifer and did not want to accept that and challenge this whole system. You see, there's a much bigger picture here between the whole, uh, you know, woman's ordination. It's not as, as simple as, oh, you, you men want to have the thing exclusively to yourselves. No, no, it's not like that. There is something much bigger in the background. There are certain principles that are being set up. And in like manner, if you interchange the role of man and woman to be pastor, then it's very logical to then interchange the role of the family, um, man and woman. Well, why don't you put man and man? Why don't you put woman and woman? Well, everything is interchangeable. You see what follows, brothers and sisters. Once you start that step, you have to logically follow the reasoning. And it leads to Sodom and Gomorrah, to put it quite bluntly. You with me? Where do you stop? If you in your mind believe that God is interchangeable in the positions that he has revealed himself as father and son, if you think that's interchangeable, then why stop at anything less? I guess uh, you never thought that the Trinity has to do with women's ordination, right? But you see what we're saying now. The answer is right there in Adam and Eve. And so this is the principle that God set up. The Father is the great source of all. The Son, He's His only begotten Son. He received everything from the Father. And through the Son, everything in the universe receives life. And that's by the Spirit. And when Adam and Eve were created, Adam was created first. Eve came out of Adam. And through Eve, all other human beings receive life. It's a perfect pattern. They match. And this is the lesson for us in the last days. And that's why in Genesis 1.31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Why did God say it was very good? This is the first time he says it's very good. He never said very good before. He always saw, at the end of each day, he saw that it was good. Only when Adam and Eve were created did God say, now it is very good. Now we have a small scale picture of heaven. Adam and Eve, symbolizing the father and the son, ruling in this kingdom. And their rule would be not an authoritarian rule where the husband rules over the wife, but a loving, providing rule and a loving submission. Recognizing that we are a lesson for the angels. And so to quickly summarize here, we're just a close in summary. The Father and the Son. The Son comes forth from the Father as we read. Eve comes forth from Adam. Father is the head of Christ. Man is the head of the woman. Family is named after the Father. Family named by Adam. The Son is the expressed image of the Father by inheritance. He has that nature. And Eve was a help meet for Adam, one who inherited his nature as well. And the equality of the Son is based on His relationship to the Father. He is equal by right of birth. They, have, they, they share this one spirit, as we said. Equal through relationship, as far as Adam and Eve were concerned. They are one flesh, the same nature. All things were made through Christ. All things come through Eve. The Father is the head of the heavenly family, and Adam is the head of the earthly family. 1 Corinthians 4.9, Paul says, For I think that God hath set us has set forth us, the apostles last, as it were, appointed to death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world, and to angels, and to men. What's a spectacle mean? Something you, something you watch, right? Something you behold. It's like a theater, like a display. We are made a spectacle, not just to the world, but also to angels. So that's the question, that's the challenge, really, of this study today. How is your home a spectacle to the angels that visit? Or do the angels prefer not to visit? Sometimes how we are in the home drives the angels away. You realize that? You know, when God tells the angel, I want you to go to the home of brother and sister. Say, so, oh, not their home, please. I don't want to go there. Do we imagine what we do to the angels, huh? Or do they, oh yes, I love to go to that home. I love to hang out there. It is, a, I feel right at home in their home. Because it's just like, what I'm used to in heaven. Brothers and sisters, the family is one of the greatest weapons that God has given us. That's why the family is under severe attack today by the devil. And so when you have issues at home, don't stress this, the devil trying to give you heartache and headache. Remember, we have a high calling. And so God is designing that our families, our homes, are to help dispel some of these questions, some of these doubts. 
that Satan, Lucifer, raised about the Father and about the Son. And finally, there will come a day when the lesson will have been learned. In Luke 20 and verse 34, we're told here, Jesus answering said unto them, The children of this world marry and are given in marriage, but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Neither can they die anymore, for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God being the children of the resurrection. When we finally get to the kingdom of heaven, up where God and his son are physically there, it says here there will be no more marriage. A lot of people... Uh, don't like that. I've had a lot of discussions. This is one of, a very common question. To say, you know, yeah, but maybe in heaven in a thousand years we won't marry. But when we come back down here to the new earth, then, then there will be marriage again. That's, that's not the case, brothers and sisters. You know, I don't want to disappoint you, but that's not what the teaching of the scripture is. And there is a reason for that. The purpose that God set up the family for, each individual home and each individual family, the lessons that God designed to be reflected and to be taught by the family will by that stage have been learned fully. There will be no more questions ever in anyone's mind about the father and the son. And so when you finish a lesson book, you close the book, right? And so this lesson book will come to a close. And don't worry, God has something much better in store. You know, a lot of people say, well, I can't picture not living with my, with my husband, with my wife. I love them so dearly. You know, you don't know what God's got prepared for us. We will all be members of one beautiful, big family. And it doesn't mean everything, we, all the experiences, memories we've shared with our loved ones are going to be erased. We're still going to have that, you know, closeness. But as the scripture teaches us, we can't really ignore what the scripture says. Anyway, like I said, I've had this discussion more times than I can even remember with a lot of people. But God is calling us now, brothers and sisters, while that lesson book is still open. God has given us this high honor, this high privilege. When we understand the Father and who He is, and the Son and who He is, it helps us understand why He did the things He did. You know, when I, when I used to believe in the Trinity, I never had a clue about any of this stuff. <laughs> you know, the story of the creation of Adam and Eve, and why Eve was created the way she is, has no answer as far as the Trinity is concerned. There's no explanation for why Eve was created the way she is. And people say, well, it's just God. He did it the way he is. But when you understand what God, who God is, and what he is like, it all of a sudden starts making a lot more sense. And this is why we're talking about Adam and Eve and the Trinity. Adam and Eve are the problem that the Trinity has. The Trinity and Adam and Eve are incompatible. The reason why they're incompatible is we were taught in church that three equals one, right? Is that right? That's what people believe. Three make one. We weren't taught that in school. You would fail in math if you did that in school. You would not pass. But the infinitely more area of church and worship, we are ready to accept things that make no sense to us and that have no biblical foundation. Three does not equal one. You know, try and tell that to your bank when you borrow money. I borrowed 300,000, here is 100,000. Brother, my pastor said three equals one. <laughs> They'll put you in jail. And this is a worldly matter. You know what I'm talking about, brothers and sisters, but yet when, when we come to the area of worship, which is the issue in the last days, we are ready to accept and believe that three can equal one. And in our minds, our worship is affected by this concept. When the Father and the Son made Adam and Eve, they made how many beings? Two, not three, right? So here is, a, here is a formula that is correct. Two does not equal three. Adam and Eve are an image and likeness of two, not three. You can't look at Adam and Eve and conclude that they were made by three beings. Well, they don't only have one child. <laughs> this, this sounds... Uh, this sounds uh, Vaguely uh, Catholic all of a sudden now with the child there, but, <laughs> but Adam and Eve without the children were made in the image and likeness of God. Of course they were to procreate and the limit was not set at all as far as children are concerned. But brothers and sisters, this is a very, very important aspect. When we look at Adam and Eve, we cannot conclude that three are the source of two. 
It's not what the Bible tells us. And so I want to leave you with this uh, equation. I want to leave you with this challenge. In our home, in our family, how do we reflect? How do we portray the positions of the father and the son? Husbands, that's you for the fathers. And wives, that's you for the son. It's a very high privilege. There's only one begotten son. And of all the beings, God selected the ladies to reflect that in the home. That's a, that's a beautiful privilege. So I pray that uh, we will look at our homes and sit down with the family and maybe have a meeting and say, look, family, maybe the father, look, I haven't been a father like I should or the wife. Whatever it is you have to do, brothers and sisters, for the sake of your family, for the sake of your children, for the sake of the high calling that God has for us. I challenge you to take that on board and to make that your priority. So let's have a word of prayer as we close. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.